Hi, everybody. Good to see you. If you're new here, my name's Joel, and we are in the book of Matthew. We go through uh, books of the Bible uh, week by week here as a church, and uh, we're in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, and I'm going to read to you from uh, chapter 5 in a moment, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. That's where we've got to, and um, we're, we're going to see, see what we can learn and apply from this for our own questions and struggles. I suppose whoever you are, you'll be curious about how does Jesus fit with the rest of the Bible? Uh, certainly if you've come to church today for the first time or if you come to church for the 12th millionth time, that's always a, a thing for us to wrestle with and, and clarify because the, the, the Old Testament law especially can, can seem demanding, it can seem obscure, uh, it can seem culturally removed from us. Uh, it can seem even pretty non-PC for, for us 21st century Brightonians. Uh, what does Jesus make of it? How does he fit in with it? And uh, how should we understand this? This is actually a really important subject for us, and you'll see why as we get into it. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As we build up to uh, the end of this month, uh, we're aware in this nation that uh, a lot of things are about to change, but it's a little tricky knowing precisely what things are going to change. And whichever kind of Brexit, whichever shape of Brexit, whichever scale of Brexit uh, finally takes place, um, we, we, we know that some things are likely to be in some way uh, changed. And, and it's, it's, it's a kind of moment for kind of holding on to things and hoping things don't totter and fall because transformation is coming, some kind of turning point is about to be launched on us. I suppose Jesus' ministry would not normally be compared to, to Brexit. But the point I want to make is that he, he brought huge transformation to people's lives. When he started preaching, it shook things. It shook things so much that people were reaching out for the railings, as it were, Trying to think, yeah, how do I get some stability? What, what, is, what in this new landscape reminds me of what was before? Is there anything left over? He was that remarkable. Just in his preaching, you can see that even in the way they referred to his preaching in the very end of this sermon, which uh, we're going through. It says at the end of chapter 7 of Matthew, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And when it says astonished, it really means it. The word is, is, is they were taken apart. They were sent crazy. Some translations would have the word amazed. And these days we, we talk about, we use the word amazed for salad. 
uh, or, or, or phone apps, but actual amazement, the literal meaning is to be sent kind of mad. And uh, people's minds were blown because what Jesus was saying was causing them to have to question and rethink everything in their life. And re really, that is a bit of a mark still, 20 centuries later, of what happens to a person who genuinely meets Jesus. Their life is going to be turned upside down in some way. And when that happens to you, you kind of think, well, what, what's left over? What's still there? Is anything the same? Well, one of the biggest things that would have been concerning them was, what does this mean with the rest of what God has said to us up until now? If, if, you're, if Jesus, if you really are true, if you really are right, you're saying some incredible, radical things. What does this mean about Moses? What does this mean about the law? What does it mean about the Torah? What does it mean about the prophets? Are you saying that we should throw them away? Are they to be rejected now? Because that's a big deal for these people. They built their whole lives. They built their whole society, their families, everything they knew about God, everything they knew about themselves, everything they knew about their nation, and their nationhood was incredibly important to them. They knew from the Torah and from the prophets. They knew from what we would, I guess, what we call the Old Testament. It's kind of a shorthand way of saying all the writings up till now. That's kind of what Jesus is saying, is referring to here in this passage. And so the question would be, what are you saying about these parts of the Bible? Now, this doesn't seem necessarily a big deal for 21st century Brightonians, but when you start digging into the, the Old Testament, you will reflect a lot on how does this fit with Jesus? How does it relate to Jesus? And many people will decide in our day and age, many people who even claim to follow Jesus, many people who, who say they love Jesus and, and they even might even teach about Jesus and, 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 and try and start churches about Jesus. But what they do in some cases, increasingly, is say, well, we've got Jesus and we've got the bits he said. We like that and we like him. We just, we don't like the rest of the Bible. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of use Jesus as a filter for kicking out any parts of the Bible that don't fit in, that we don't like as much. That's kind of what they're saying. And the reality is that it means they probably haven't looked that hard at the Jesus bit anyway. They haven't looked at the bits that, that, <laughs> that what Jesus himself said in the Gospels, because actually some of the most offensive, some of the most demanding parts of the Bible are the ones that Jesus spoke. And so I, I actually think the whole project is doomed from the start, because you can't chop up the Bible like that anyway. It doesn't really work. But, but even if you could, what you've got here is Jesus himself saying, don't do that. Jesus here himself, yeah, even Jesus is saying, no, I, I'm not getting rid of Moses. I'm not getting rid of the prophets. I'm not getting rid of Torah, the law, these parts of the Bible, these Old Testament laws, these demanding commandments and these curious commandments and quite, quite sort of uh, culturally removed commandments. I want, I want you to hold on to them all. They are to stay. Those things are important. Jesus is insisting on it. What does he mean? Really? Is that what Jesus is? Jesus wouldn't agree with the law because we have this kind of image of Jesus as the kind of guy that would go on BBC Question Time and get a round of applause for everything he said, which is frankly not true. He wouldn't. But, but we particularly struggle with these 
parts and yet he's seeming to be prepared to affirm them. But in the way he affirms them here, we, we find some fascinating words because he doesn't necessarily give a blanket affirmation. He actually uses the word fulfill. He said in verse 17, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Fulfill them. What does he mean by fulfill? What does Matthew mean with that word? Well, we've got a bit of a head start, actually, because we've, we've seen that word crop up quite a few times in the first four chapters of Matthew. It's come up six or seven times already. Jesus is, is referred to often by Matthew as fulfilling what was written by the prophet Isaiah, or this was to fulfill what was said by Jeremiah. This was to fulfill what was said by Hosea. He even says to John the Baptist when he's being baptized, and, and John's saying, I can't baptize you, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, we must fulfill all righteousness. There's, there's a pattern in Matthew's gospel from the beginning, pretty thick pattern, quite strong, of Jesus shown as the fulfiller of previous bits of the Bible. But the way that he's fulfilling those things, what's being described in those, those little places in Matthew, is, is, is not so much Jesus just sort of keeping the rules of, of the Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments and so on, the hundreds of other laws that came with the Ten Commandments, hundreds and hundreds of them, you, you'll know about them if you've read the books of Numbers and Leviticus and Exodus and so on and Deuteronomy. It's not actually talking about him fulfilling them. In, in, in that. That's not quite the point that's being made in those verses. What's being made instead is, is, let's put it like this, Jesus comes along as the one who brings closure to the story. Jesus comes along again and again and it's like he's saying, this part of the story is about me. This part of the story is about me. He's showing how... His, his life, his work, in fact, his death and resurrection are what the whole story, the whole of the Torah, the whole of the prophets, the whole of Moses and all the others, what they were actually all writing about. It all points to Jesus himself. He is the fulfillment. And, and when you start to see that, you begin to understand how, in fact, the Bible holds together as one magnificent, grand story that only makes sense and only finds its fulfillment in Jesus himself. That's, that's very much what the Bible is. In fact, that's how to come to grips with the Bible. It's not primarily a book of rules for you and I to keep, or a book of advice for how to have a better, wiser life, or how to be successful, or it's not even a, 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 a few thoughts for us on our day to help us get through. The Bible, first and foremost, is God telling us who he is and what he's done. It's the story of God's dealings, the story of God's plan. It's the great story. The story in which Jesus is the key player, the key hero, and the key purpose, the key climax, the, the crunch point, the, 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 the point of closure in the whole story. It all points to him, including the law and including the prophets, all of these writings. It makes sense and fits fully around him. He is the fulfiller of the story. 
It's a story of God making a human race who, who rebel against him, who are supposed to represent him over creation on his behalf, but instead turn away from him. They are unfaithful to him. And how God reaches out and recruits a new man called Abram, gives him a new name, Abraham, and causes him to give birth to tribes and a nation, a nation that goes down into slavery in Egypt. God rescues that nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt through some miracles that he does. And then he gives them a new covenant, a new arrangement, a marriage arrangement, if you like, between him and them, where he gives them his rescue, his love. He sets them free from slavery. He gives them a new land. He gives them a new future and destiny and promises. And he says, now I want you to respond by keeping these particular requirements. This is my covenant for you. Now I want you to do these things in response for me. And they for hundreds of years, consistently fail to keep their side of the marriage covenant. They, they are not faithful to him, and they break his heart for hundreds of years. And he sends messengers, prophets, called to, to bring the people back to their covenant vows, their promises, their relationship with Yahweh, the God of, of creation, the God of Israel. They, they say, you've got to come back. You've got to come back to the law. You've got to come back to this God who gave you a covenant. But they don't respond. And in the end, the prophets change their message. They start saying, this is not going to work. This covenant is over. You, you've, it's blown. It's, it's ruined. It's spoiled by you. But then, stunningly and gloriously, they begin to bring a new message still, through people like Jeremiah in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, where, where the prophets start to say what God is going to do in response to Israel's failure is basically to give them a new covenant, a, a new arrangement altogether. And it will be characterized not by laws being written on stone, uh, rules that they have to go and look up, as it were, and things they have to keep by sort of fear and, and trepidation and, and uh, unknown kind of expectations, but, but sort of, well, I've got to keep these rules to keep, to keep him with God. because I don't really want to, but I suppose I have to. I don't really like God. I don't really like the rules, but I suppose I have to keep them. Otherwise, I'll be in trouble. No, Jeremiah says, no, God is going to write these laws on your hearts. God is going to work within you to create love and desire, transforming motivation so that you begin to obey and please and, and show faithfulness towards and trust towards him out of a, a heart of love because you've been one to him, because you want him. God's going to change you inwardly. He's going, to, he's going to change your core. He's going to change your inner motives and desires. He's going to work within you to bring change. This is the story the Bible tells, and this is the very story Jesus is coming with and saying, I have come to fulfill this story. I am the fulfillment of this story. I am this story happening and being brought to its climax, being brought to its closure. It's happening through me, finally. It's like in a good kind of crime detective film where the, 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 the detective starts to put together all the clues, all the threads, and they fit together. And you say, oh, that's why that happened. Oh, that's how this happened. Oh, this bit didn't make sense, but now it does. And you actually read the Bible. You start to say, oh, that's what the animal sacrifices meant. 
That's what this, this priestly system meant. That's what the uncleanness and the cleanness meant. It all pointed to a place in history where God had to come and show his mercy and his justice at the same time. Jesus is the, is the proper fulfillment of all of these things. And so Jesus fulfills the Torah by fulfilling the story. And it does mean, in fact, that in a sense, the, the, the relationship you and me should have with the Torah is very different to the relationship that those people of Israel should have had with it. He did bring it to an end. In fact, we have to look a little bit at the very words he uses, like in verse 18 here, which we read, where it says this, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, what does he mean by that? It's actually interesting to, to compare that phrase, until heaven and earth pass away, with a bit later on in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus is talking about the huge changes that are about to take place in Israel in the lifetime of his very disciples. He says this to them in Matthew 24, verse 34. Truly, I say to you, this generation, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So it's interesting in Matthew 5, he says, the Torah will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. But then he talks about in their very lifetime, Something like heaven and earth passing away. He's using big language, but then he says, my words will not pass away. It seems like there is a kind of a staggered process. There's like almost like a relay baton going on here. Where the big changes that Jesus brought into the world through his preaching and teaching, through his miracles, through his life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God, what Jesus has come to do in Israel and in history at a certain time and place has changed the way that these Old Testament books are to be read. That in one sense, they have passed away in the sense that we are not called to relate to God through the Torah. If you, if you want to get to know God, God himself has come amongst us. He's like the, the Torah, the law, has come in the flesh. God the, has, has revealed himself to us. He has walked our streets and lived amongst us, and he is, by his spirit, he can, he's living amongst us here now. By his spirit, he can be in our lives in a way that the law itself was never quite able to do. By, by his spirit, he can be in our hearts. He can bring transformation. He can be the, the real presence of God bringing his leadership, his lordship to our very lives. And it's interesting, again, that he says in verse 18 here, I say to you, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What did Jesus say from the cross as he was dying? It is accomplished. And Matthew makes the point. He even describes, it looks as, as though he's describing heaven and earth passing away. At the cross, there was a huge amount of drama. There was earthquakes. There was, there was the sky going dark. There were bodies coming from tombs, there was a curtain in the temple separating 
the people from the holy presence of God and that the law had set up in the Old Testament this special priestly system. If you wanted to go to God, you had to go legally through this sacrificial system curated, presided over by these specially selected priests. They were the only way. This was the only way that one could come to to be before the God of Israel. And at the point when Jesus gave up his life on the cross, this curtain was torn from top to bottom. God tearing it and saying, this old way of relating to me, this Torah, this, this, this system of approach is, is, in, is in fact obsolete. This is in fact not the way to know me now. I am welcoming you in by a new and living way. I'm welcoming you into a new kind of relationship, a new way of knowing me. And, and so we come now to God in his son, Jesus. And whereas after Moses, Joshua, for example, is told at the very beginning of the book of Joshua in chapter one, he's told, abide by these laws of Moses. Teach the people to obey these laws of Moses. Jesus, at the end of Matthew chapter 28, having risen from the tomb, appears to his disciples and says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything Moses has commanded. No, no, that's the whole point. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Jesus is saying, I'm the, the new Moses. I'm the master. I'm the teacher that you need. And these rules, these laws that are here, are now superseded. I have this authority as your master. I don't bow down to the law in that sense. I've come where the law was the moon that worked in the night to give you light. I declare the sunrise. I've come as the sun. The moon was just a reflection, a pale reflection of the light of the sun. Jesus is God come in the flesh to guide and lead his people, his cherished, beloved people in whose hearts he has worked. And you see this actually work out. So what we'll discover as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is we'll see what he means by fulfilling the law. We've said already he fulfills it by fulfilling the story. But you'll see that actually he he starts to make his own commands on his people, his demands on his people, but they work at a different level than the laws of Moses. The law of the Old Testament was really related primarily to external obedience. You could be a a keeper of the law, it would seem. You could at least give the impression of being a keeper of the law by going through the motions, by very practical and outwardly uh, impressive things. And Jesus is coming and saying, listen, I'm calling you to a level of obedience that goes deep beneath the surface. It comes from within. It comes from the heart. It comes from a love and a desire for God and therefore a love and a preference of other people, a willingness to lay your life down wholeheartedly for other people. That's what I'm calling. That's what I'm preaching. That's what I want to see in my people. I want to see heart change, not just external obedience. God knows we can have external obedience, but your heart can be cold. You can look very religious and you can look very holy. And on the outside, 
come across as ever such a righteous person, but your heart can be murderously cold, can be filled with lusts and desires and hatreds and greed, hypocrisy and pride. Jesus is saying that's, that's, that to me is the deepest problem. That's the thing I've come to destroy. That's the thing I want to declare war on. That's what I want to change. I want to lift that ugly heart out of you and replace it with a new heart with the law written on it so that you obey from a desire and a love and a trust towards God. You're pleased to know him and pleased to love him. So Jesus fulfills the law by fulfilling the story it tells. And, and I suppose it's worth us being honest at this moment and thinking, am I really ready for that? Because I, I, I find this, if I read the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, incredibly challenging. Moses is demanding, if I read this with, quickly, I'll find this more demanding, actually. Jesus raises the bar. He he goes deeper. He, he makes obedience look even more challenging, in fact. And, and we need to think, what, what do we, what do we, what hope do we have? What, what hope do I have to obey this set of commands? And you'll find that, you'll feel the pinch of it as we go through it over the weeks. If you've never felt uncomfortable and unsettled by the teachings of Jesus, you haven't been listening to them. They, they, they are incredibly heart-searching. The Sermon on the Mount is, is, is not a pleasant sermon. It, it causes you to, to have to deconstruct so much of what you assume. And you have to be very questioning of your motives. and You have to think, oh God, help me. And Jesus says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? He shines the light. He shines the x-ray machine on our hearts. It's, it's, you could get past some x-ray machines because you, know, you, 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 you could sort of get through because, well, I'm not carrying any weapons. I'm not carrying any blades or pistols. But he, he's able to x-ray us spiritually. And he sees, no, there's, there's, there's weapons in here. There's hatred in here. And that's, that's actually the thing he's most concerned about. Anyone can avoid. It seems that there's a, a way to live a righteous life outwardly that he's not impressed with particularly. He, he's really looking to see something that's so much more profound, so much more inward. And it does cause us to have to stop and reflect to the point where we might be tempted to think, how is this good news? <laughs> this is not the good news according to Matthew. Is, is it not? I thought that's what we were, it's called, beginning of the gospel according to Matthew. That's what it means, good news. How is this good news to be told by Jesus? You thought Moses was hard. You know, game on. I'm come to, you know, I'm, I'm, he, he was an amateur. I'm going pro. This is going to get a lot harder. Welcome to the SAS of, of righteousness. And, and so we could be so discouraged. I think, well, how is this possibly good news? Until we stop to reflect the second way that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. We talked just now about how he fulfills the law by fulfilling the story, but he also fulfills it by fulfilling the requirements of it. He comes to fulfill it by showing it in himself. He actually lives the perfect 
life of faithfulness to God's covenant. He comes amongst humanity. He comes amongst broken Israel, failed Israel, unfaithful, adulterous Israel. And he is the perfectly faithful Israelite. He keeps every single one of the laws of Moses, not just externally. He keeps them from a heart of love. He loves to do God's will. He loves God's law. He loves it through and through. I love your law. That's the heart of Jesus. He said to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He was always obeying his father from sheer delight and pleasure. He utterly trusted him and loved him as we are all called to, but none of us have. Our record is terribly stained. And, and he came to Israel showing how it was to be done, but not just showing how, but doing it on their behalf. And so when he says, I've come to fulfill this law, you could say, it's, it's like my friend Glenn Scrivener says, Moses gives you an empty glass with the expectation, you better fill this up. That's when someone, someone gives you an empty glass, it's like they're saying, fill it up for me. Fill this. Moses gives you the laws and says, now you fill them. You fill this out in your life. You better. This is the demand on you. Jesus doesn't give you an empty glass. Jesus has filled it out himself. He has fulfilled. He's filled it full. His life was a full life of sheer covenant obedience. And he gives it to us as a gift. He says, this is yours. This is now your record. This righteousness is now yours. I, I give it to you. I am the Israelite you never were. I am the, the Adam that failed. I, I've come to be what you've never been. This changes everything for me and you, doesn't it? It sets everything straight. It changes the whole situation. It changes the situation for Israel completely. It meant that the promise to Abraham was fulfilled. Paul talks about this in Galatians, that the promise to Abraham, through your seed, I will bless all the families of all the world. And Israel could never live up to that. How could Israel do that with all her unfaithfulness? And yet Jesus, the perfect one, has lived out what Israel was meant to live out, to, to, to be obedient, to be faithful, to be a light of the world, and ultimately to suffer and take on the wrath of God on behalf of the world so that he was enabled to, to, to then rise from the dead as the new Israel, to bless all the nations of the world. And that's what's happened. God has fulfilled this story. It all pointed to him. But you and me, we don't, we don't relate to God by going, if we, if, we, if we think, I've got to know God, so I've got to just keep all these rules and live like an Israelite, if you like. Well, it's a bit like if I needed to go to the dentist, which I do sometimes, and, and I saw the sign that says, this way to the dentist, and I stopped there and waited for the, the you know, I sort of waited for the sign to fix me. And eventually I might get shoved into the dentist's office and say, no, the the sign won't fix you. Is the sign wrong? No, the sign is to point to the dentist. The the law points us to Jesus. And it does in all kinds of ways. It points us. And we we must read it. You will learn God's ways. You will understand his son better. We meet Jesus in the law for sure as we read and read it, read it. But we must find Jesus there. We don't read it for rules. We don't read it to to try and 
bring ourselves up by our moral bootstraps. We don't read it to become more, more, you know, to sort of uh, uh, to become more like the Israel of of the ancient world. We've actually been set free from the slavery of the law in that sense to come into a new kind of slavery, slaves of Christ, whose law searches our hearts much more profoundly, and it's perfectly in keeping. It's not that the dentist would say, well, that sign's rubbish, that sign's wrong. No, the sign's right. It points you to me. It's good. The law is good. It's a gift from God. But ultimately, it's good because it points us to Christ. And Christ is the only one who can change the heart, who can melt the heart, who can transform the heart. How, how does he change us? How, do we, how does Jesus create transformation in us more than the law does? more than the Torah, more than the prophets? Well, the answer is actually in the prophets, in, in a sense. It's, it's back there in Jeremiah. I mentioned it earlier. Let me read to you the very words. You've got to hear this as the voice of a heartbroken God who's called people out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of oppression, rescued them, loved them, given them a land, given them laws, watched them crush them, watched them, watched them turn away and commit all kinds of infidelity and unfaithfulness. And this is the way God speaks to them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them. To the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The thing I want you to notice is the turning point at the end. Why does it all work? How is God able to change hearts and write his law on them? How is God able to change us so that we know him from a heart of desire rather than cold, reluctant obedience? It's In that very last sentence, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The way that Jesus changes us is so different than the law. (laughs) Laws can't forgive you. They can't. That's the whole point of a law. It can just point out where you've blown it. It can just remind you of your failure. Many of us, that's our only experience of religion. That's our only experience of God as we understand him wrongly because we think of God as just law. Jesus has come to change hearts and he does it as God in the flesh by saying, your sins are forgiven. If you come to Jesus Christ yourself and if you have come to Jesus Christ yourself, you can know today again. And as you come to take bread and wine, you can remember and remind yourself with this meal, this, this reminder of a new covenant, the very covenant Jeremiah prophesied. 
this new arrangement where God has come and given his body, given his blood, so that he's able to say at the outset, I forgive. He's able to say, my righteousness is yours. Your sins are remembered no more. It's all gone. It's all forgiven. Maybe you know the story in Luke's gospel of the, the prostitute that came and washed Jesus' feet with her tears. And the people that were sat round at this sophisticated dinner party, these VIPs, were deeply upset that this woman had walked in and covered his feet with her tears. She, they were offended that he, that he wasn't offended. If you knew what she was, of course he knew. He knew her better than she knew herself. He knew everything about her sinful, wicked life. He knew everything. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. And then he said to these other men, these, these, these righteous, legalistically righteous people, he said to them, she has been forgiven much, and so she loves much. If you've been forgiven little, you love little. If you want to know how to have a heart that's changed so that you love God more, you have to get to know the God who forgives. You never will love God until you know his forgiveness. You never will. And if you try and obey God without loving him, you will end up like those wretched legalists at that dinner party. You can only truly obey him from a loving heart when, like Jeremiah says here, you understand, for their sins and their iniquities I'll remember no more. Their sins will be forgiven. You need this Jesus. Because actually the way that Jesus comes to change our hearts, the way that Jesus comes to fulfill the law finally is really through keeping that promise of Jeremiah, through the transformation that happens inwardly for us. And though we stumble and make mistakes, which we will every day, I will fail with this Sermon on the Mount again and again. I come back to a, a saviour. I come back to a saviour. I don't come back to a law. I come back to a saviour. And, and I, I find, like, like John Bunyan said hundreds of years ago, that, that it works so differently. He says, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. You, you need to know Jesus. Your heart won't really change until you know him. And I'm talking to you Christians as well as you who aren't Christians. I'm talking to you who've been believers for 50 years. You need to know Jesus today. You need to know him because your heart will only be changed as you see him. As you see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you will be changed from one degree of glory to another. So we love God. We're grateful for his law. We're grateful for the Torah. We take it. We believe it. We, sh we see that it points to a savior, a savior whose power is available to transform us inwardly and win our obedience 
outwardly as a result. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your son's life and death and resurrection. Thank you for all it means to us, forgiveness of sins, power for change. And we pray for the wonderful Holy Spirit to work inwardly, to bring, Lord, the kind of obedience that comes from a heart of grateful love. In Jesus' name, amen.